Well, if you've been uh, looking at the news over the last few days, you'll know that the escalation of cases of COVID in Australia has uh, become as severe as it is anywhere in the world. Uh, the increase, the rapidness of uh, the spread has really been quite distressing. And I guess we just need to wait and see, don't we, as to where things are going. Uh, but COVID is not, and hasn't been, and probably won't be, uh, the most severe and impacting disease in Australian society. I mean, we can talk about different physical diseases that are out there, but one of the sad facts, and I think COVID has actually made this worse, is that anxiety and depression are amongst the most widespread debilitating diseases in our culture. The amount of anxiety that people face, I think has a lot to do with how we've shut God out of our lives and how when you don't have God in the picture of what life is all about, you find that there's nothing solid to hang on to. And I want to encourage us as we start the new year to realise that there will be anxiety. There will be times of depression. There'll be struggle. There'll be times when we feel hopeless. Uh, there'll be times when we're actually fearful. And there'll be all kinds of different struggles that we face. There may be fear associated with loved ones. There may be the disappointments and the worries related to our, our jobs, our income, what the future's going to look like, what we're able to do or not do as a church. We're going to face all kinds of issues. That's a given. But we can turn to God. And we can be reminded that God is a God who gives us real reason for hope. And so I want to recap with you Matthew chapter 1. We kind of looked at them just in brief on Christmas Eve and the Sunday before. And draw some things from those verses and also from Matthew chapter 2 to remind us that God is trustworthy. Because I think a solid grasp of the trustworthiness of God helps us to ride the ups and downs of life. So let me take you on a little bit of a journey. And as we do that, I want to remind you that there are two major landmarks in the Old Testament. And we're reminded of those two landmarks when you open Matthew chapter 1 and you're told that Jesus was a descendant of David and a descendant of Abraham. Abraham and David are very important characters in the Old Testament and they're important in particular because God made promises to both of them that was going to shape Israel from that point onwards and was going to actually be a promise or promises that would impact not only Israel but all of the nations for all time. And if you've not seen these promises, I've actually printed some little excerpts for you and you might like to follow through on the outline because we see here that in Jesus being declared to be the Messiah, the son of David and the son of Abraham, we are hearing that God has kept his promises. The first promise being the one to Abraham. Back in Genesis chapter 12, God promised to Abraham, who was an old man, who had no children, that he would be the father of a great nation and that through his offspring all nations in the earth would be blessed. 
pretty strange uh, and awkward promise to make to a man whose wife is nearly a hundred and who doesn't have any children. And yet you look at that family tree of Jesus and you see that God has kept that promise. Yes, he gave birth, well, his wife gave birth to a son uh, called Isaac and you can follow right down through the family tree and you'll get to Jesus because it's ultimately Jesus who is the offspring through whom the whole earth is going to be blessed. Fast forward uh, quite a few hundred years and you get to 1000 BC and there's a promise made to King David. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, I've printed it here for you, uh, the prophet says to David, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. The promise is made to King David that his son will be the one who builds a house for the name of God, and he will be a king who rules over God's throne over all nations and over all this universe forever and ever. Now, of course, Solomon was a great ruler, but his rule came to an end. And every king after him, their rule came to an end. And as you read through the genealogy of Jesus, you read about king after king after king whose rules all came to an end, to the point where you get to the exile, which we looked at a few months ago, where with Daniel in Babylon, where there's no Davidic king on the throne. And it seems like God's plans and purposes to King David have actually come to nothing. But they haven't. Because God keeps his promise in Jesus being the Messiah, the promised king, who is the son of David. And the genealogy bears that out. So when you're looking at this genealogy, which kind of seems like a strange way to start a story about somebody. If you are tuned in to these two big promises that God has made to Abraham and to David, you're leaping with joy because these promises have been kept and God has demonstrated that he's a faithful, trustworthy God. Now, there's a lot more that shows this as well. Um, notice in the genealogy, there are two people that stand out, Abraham and David, but there's another event that stands out. So in verse 17, thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. The exile to Babylon was a time where it seemed that God's promises had come to nothing because physically they had. There was no physical King David on the throne. There was no physical throne. They'd been taken captive away from Jerusalem and the temple where the, the palace would have held the Davidic king it no longer exists and now they're captive in a foreign land and it's at that time that God's prophets say that God hasn't forgotten his promises and this king who's to come is not going to rule over a new plot of land in the Middle East he's going to rule over the entire universe and he will do so for the sake of all nations as the forever king. So you've got fulfilment of Jesus' promise to Abraham, fulfilment of God's promise to David. The exile to Babylon is finding its fulfilment. In the genealogy, 
we, we made passing reference to this. You've got Tamar, Rahab, Ruth and Uriah's wife mentioned and then Mary. It's all the father of the father of the father of the father of the father of. But on a number of occasions, we are told that such and such was the wife of or the mother of. Why are these four women and then Mary mentioned? Well, I think there's a number of reasons. One is sinfulness. Now, it's not to say that all the men weren't sinful. Every man in that list except for Jesus is sinful. But there's something that stood out among these women. Uh, you can read the account. Tamar, who dresses up as a prostitute and sleeps with her father-in-law. Now, father-in-law is absolutely as culpable as Tamar was. Rahab, who we know to have been the prostitute in Jericho, who is held in great regard in the New Testament for trusting God and letting the people in and keeping them safe. And of course, uh, when you read of Ruth, it's, it's a little hard to know what's going on there. But both the first two women are Canaanites. Ruth is a Moabite. And then Uriah is a Hittite and his wife Bathsheba, well, she's involved in an adulterous relationship, which, yes, it's King David's fault. He's the one who's responsible. And he takes her to be his wife after murdering, effectively, her husband. Now, that's pretty messy stuff to stick in a genealogy about Jesus. And by mentioning women who have these kind of uh, sordid associations, it's not like you're trying to hide anything. So what's going on? I think two things. God made a promise to deal with our sinfulness, to make us clean, and Jesus the Messiah comes to be the Saviour. And we see that even in Jesus' line, we're being prepared for that. Secondly, God made a promise that the Messiah to the Jews would be the Saviour to all nations. And already in the family tree, you've got Canaanites and Moabites and Hittites. God is not just for Israel, he's for all nations. And then, of course, you've got the promise of the virgin birth and his name being Emmanuel, taken from Isaiah 7. We saw that on Christmas Eve. And now, in chapter 2, you'll notice in the handout that I've given you, I've made bold these statements, for this is what the prophet has written. And so was fulfilled what the Lord has said through the prophet. And what was said through the prophet, Jeremiah, was fulfilled. And so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. Matthew is wanting us to see very, very clearly that God is keeping his promises. See, as he starts this biography of Jesus, here is a big message in the start of Matthew. We see it in chapter 1, we see it in chapter 2, we're going to see it in chapter 3, chapter 4, and on into the Gospel of Matthew. But he starts it so strongly. God made a promise. God has kept the promise. God made a promise. God has kept the promise. Again and again, we are told that God is the faithful, trustworthy, promise-keeping God. It relates to the, the circumstances of the Messiah's birth born to a virgin, God among us. It relates to the fact that Jesus and his family flee to Egypt and they're refugees in a foreign place and then come back when it's safe and that fulfills the message of Hosea out of Egypt, I call my son. It relates to the promise 
that Jeremiah spoke of where Rachel was weeping because the children were being killed. And this horrible story in Matthew 2 about a paranoid Herod who kills every infant in the vicinity of Bethlehem so that he can make sure that he's killed Jesus. And then finally, so it was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Big message of Matthew 1 and 2, God is a trustworthy God. Is that an academic idea? No. No, in a world of chaos, where we're constantly uncertain, where there's fake news and there's lies and deception, where there's confusion, there's chaos, and there is serious worry about what the future holds, we need to remember that God is a trustworthy God. No matter what is done, we can trust in God. Well then, what can we see in Matthew chapter 2? Um, that was sermon part one, now sermon part two. Part two, quite quickly, I think we've got in this chapter three main characters. Now, there are others, and you could debate whether I should have put in four main characters, including the angels, whether I should have another main character, and that is it all starts with God. Um, yes, but we have these three main characters, I think, throughout this chapter. The main character, I think, is Jesus. In verse 1, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Verse 1, Jesus is named. Following that, he is called the child on every occasion. You see it there in verse 8, again in verses 9, 11, 13, 14, 20 and 21. And sometimes there is a mention of the mother and the child. The angel comes to Joseph and he's not uh, giving a message to Joseph about Joseph's child. He doesn't say your child, he says the child. You see, there's something very special about Jesus. He is the child. And the matters. He's not just a child. And yes, it's obvious that he's a child. But why keep referring to him as the child? Again and again and again. Well, I think if we think back to the promises to Abraham that his offspring would be a blessing to all nations, and to David that his offspring would be the king who would rule over everything for all eternity. Here's the offspring. Here's the child. Here's the one that God had promised. And here's the centre of the attention. There are two other characters. There are the Magi. Now, we perhaps, uh, I don't think we sang this song at Christmas, but... It's certainly well known as a Christmas carol. We three kings of Orient are. Now there's a problem with that. We're not told that there were three. And we're not told that they're kings. Other than that, Orient's probably right. Um, there are people called Magi. What do we get from the word Magi? Magician. 
These are people who come from the East, probably Persian influence, maybe under the uh, worldview of Zoroastrianism or something like that, who are basically into the occult. They're people who worship the stars and follow them. They are astrologers, not simply astronomers. These aren't uh, devout Bible-believing Jews. They're foreigners with a foreign religion who are seeking guidance by foreign means. And the amazing thing is, God uses all of that. What you see, however, with these foreigners coming is that their purpose is to worship the one who is born King of the Jews. Verse 2, they saw a star when it rose and have come to worship him. And then when you come down to verse 11, on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshipped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. The Magi, who are complete outsiders to the things of God, are, I think, in chapter 2, the example of how we are to respond to the cross child. That is, this child has come to be the Saviour King, and the right response is to come and to worship him and to give him what he deserves. They bow down and they give him gifts. By contrast, there's another character in this account, and his name is Herod. And the interesting thing is that Herod is a king among the Jews. In verse 1, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. And the Magi come to him and he gets, verse 3, disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. There's, there's a worry here. What's going on? I mean, Herod is the king. How can there be another king? How can one be born to be the king? And so on. But the teachers of the law know, because they've read the scriptures, that God had planned that there would be one who would come as a ruler, a king who would shepherd the people and would be born in Bethlehem. And then you read the account of the Magi going and worshipping this king. But Herod actually has it in for this child. In verse 16, you see what Herod's intention is. When Herod realised that he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. And so was fulfilled what the prophet had said. There are two competing and, and contrary responses to Jesus. And I, I think in many ways, You've got summed up here the, the, the polar opposites that are just as true today. That is, people who are outside are welcome to come in and worship Jesus. And sadly, some who think that they've got it all together don't want Jesus in their life. And so they seek to remove him. With Herod, it was through murder through wiping out a generation of small boys. 
For most of us, it's just not giving God much time at all. Not giving him the time of day. Friends, as we start 2022, I'd like us to remember two things. One, that God is trustworthy. We will go through ups and downs when you're at a low, when you're struggling, look to God because it's in God that you will find real and lasting hope. Secondly, what are your plans for 2022? And I would encourage you, whatever those plans may be, whether they're getting a job, studying, working around the house, doing some travel, getting a bit of rest, improving uh, circumstances in your life in this area or that area, whatever they may be, make them secondary to the priority of worshipping Jesus as your King. Because if Jesus is the fulfilment of God's promises to Abraham and to David, if all scripture finds its fulfilment in Jesus, which Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, then Jesus deserves our very best. So whether it's our time, our energy, our money, our gifts, our attitude, our plans, or all of the above, let's make them about worshipping Jesus in 2022. How about we pray? Father, please help us not to be like Herod, threatened by Jesus and pushing him out of the way. Let us be like the Magi, who come and give generously to Jesus, who bow down and worship him. And let us be people who look to you for hope and who are confident that you are our trustworthy God, that you've kept your promises and you'll keep them again.